Why is the sky blue? Why is the grass green? How do fish breathe underwater? Why do mommy and daddy kiss each other so much? (laughs) A very important one. Did Adam and Eve have a belly button? I don't know. As anyone who has been around children will tell you, kids ask a lot of questions. A lot of questions. And sometimes it can feel incessant. Young minds are curious minds, so they ask questions. They ask questions about anything and everything. It's just what kids do. They're curious people, so they ask questions. But even though our questions get a little serious when we get older, we keep asking questions. Will my acne ever go away? Something I asked. Does that boy like me? What school should I go to? What college? What university? What city should I live in? Will I ever get married? How should I spend my time, my money, my energy? These are questions we ask as we get older. And then towards the end of our life, the questions get really, really serious. Am I ready to die? Will I go to heaven or to hell? If you're a Christian, am I ready to meet King Jesus? Questions, questions. I, I, just this morning, I had a, a childhood friend, and his grandfather died. And uh, this man, I met a few times, was a, a generous, serious, faithful Christian. And I, I imagined the questions he was asking himself as he was about to die. The questions we ask are very revealing. They show a lot about us. If you want to get a diagnostic, a diagnostic test of your own spiritual life, take a look at the questions you ask about Jesus Christ. It reveals a lot about you. Maybe your heart right now is really full of faith and love. So you are asking questions like, what great thing can I next do to glorify Jesus? Or maybe you are struggling, and your questions are a little bit more doubtful. Is Jesus real? Could Jesus really perform all these miracles that we just read about? Is Jesus really who he says he is? In our passage today, we see the crowds, the people of Capernaum, encounter Jesus. And it's one day. It's like a day and a half, but it's, it's basically one day. And in the course of this day with Jesus, these crowds are surprised. So they ask questions of Jesus. They, they ask three very revealing questions about Jesus Christ. My prayer today is that God would use the answers to these three questions to reveal to us the glory and authority of Jesus, the King. That's my prayer today that God would use the answers to these three questions to reveal to us the glory and authority of Jesus. The first question the crowds ask, what is this word? What is this word? As we come to our passage, we see that Jesus has moved cities from last week. If you remember the sermon from last week, he was in the city of Nazareth, which was his hometown. It's where he grew up. And he's no longer there. Instead, he's in Capernaum, which Luke says is a city of Galilee. 
Capernaum is the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. He kind of goes back there again and again and again. Four of Jesus' disciples lived in Capernaum when Jesus met them. And, and similarly to last week when he was in Nazareth, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Just like last week, he goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath and he preaches. He would have been handed a scroll, he would have read a passage, and then he taught the people. What is different about Capernaum versus Nazareth is the reaction of the crowd. It's very different. In Nazareth, they heard Jesus' teaching and they tried to kill him. Very strong reaction, right? In Capernaum, they, they don't try to kill him. They seem to be receiving the teaching well. Luke says they are astonished at his teaching. They found it surprising. They found it stunning. Why? Why were they so surprised? According to Luke, it, it was because his word possessed authority. If you see that in the passage, his word possessed authority. You see, the rabbis who typically would have preached in the synagogues did not preach with authority. They, instead, they relied on the traditions of men to interpret the Old Testament. And they, they kind of took it to the extreme. They were so traditional that they prided themselves on how unoriginal they could be. For example, one rabbi famously said, listen to this, I have never in my life said a thing which I did not hear from my teachers. I, I have never in my life said a thing which I did not hear from my teachers. It's pretty unoriginal. Jesus is not like that. Jesus is not like that. Jesus needs no teacher. Jesus opened the word of God and he taught it with authority because it was his word. This is why it was so stunning to the crowds. There is no need for Jesus to hem and haw and talk about what people have believed in the past. Didn't need to talk about tradition. He simply opened the scroll and taught what it meant. He taught in such a way that it was clear that he knew that every word he was saying was true. Because he is true. And the word of God is his word. It would have even sounded different to what I am doing right now when I open Luke and I, I preach it. Uh, when we as pastors preach, we apply the word of God to the people of God. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to tell you what it means and then apply it to you. So the authority is with the word. It's not with us. Whenever we preach, it's just the Bible speaking to you and us trying to apply it to you. When Jesus preached, he didn't just apply the word, although I'm, I'm sure he did that. He made commands. He made commands out of his authority. For example, Matthew 5, 29, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If I said that to you, and you didn't know that was in the Bible, you'd be like, this guy's crazy. This guy's insane. But when Jesus said that, for some reason, people listened. They, they heard that, and they thought, that, that seems right. That seems authoritative on my life. Jesus had this authority that no one had ever heard before. When Jesus taught, people began to realize, this is God himself teaching me. This is, this, this is divine teaching. This is authoritative. 
So that's what would have been happening in Capernaum. Jesus is preaching in the synagogue, and the people realize you know, he is preaching with authority. Something different is happening here. But then something happens that interrupts this whole thing. A demon shows up. Hopefully that doesn't happen today. Um, it, uh, um, it says a man with the spirit of an unclean demon is in the synagogue. The demon showed up to hear Jesus preach. And instead of sitting quietly, he decides he is not going to be quiet. He's not going to let Jesus just preach with all this authority and convince all the people. He yells, ha! It's a very rude way to, inter- to interrupt a sermon. Don't do that. He says, ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? The demon is really scared. He, he knows Jesus is against me. The demon would have been a servant of the devil. He's a servant of evil. So he's opposed to Jesus who is always righteous and good. So he's scared. He's saying, have you come to destroy us? He knows that Jesus has the power to destroy him. So he's trying to figure out what Jesus is about to do. What's, what's kind of interesting, what's kind of weird about this passage is he uses the word us. Have you come to destroy us? It's strange. Why didn't he say, have you come to destroy me, the demon? He says, what have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? It seems that the demon was so associating himself with the man that he was possessing, that he saw them almost as one person. And he's challenging Jesus with this. He's saying, if you want me gone, you're going to have to destroy him too. It's, it's either both of us or none of us. You can, you can get me, but you're going to have to get him too. You can destroy me, but you're going to have to destroy him too. Then the demon said something even weirder. I know who you are. The Holy One of God. That's really strange for a demon to say. If someone stood up right now, you don't have to do that, and said, Jesus is the Holy One of God, I would say, Amen. That's a true statement, you know? And you as a Christian, you're probably worshiping Jesus for his holiness, for his uniqueness. But demons, by their nature, do not worship Jesus. It's just not what they do. They are evil all the time. So, For him to say, you are the Holy One of God, he's trying to do something there, something bad. We see the same thing later in our passage. Uh, Same day in Capernaum, Jesus casts out a bunch of demons. And And what do they say as they're being cast out? You are the Son of God. You can almost see them like flying out of the of the people. I don't know what it would have would have looked like, but you are the Son of God. Why did they say that? That's really strange. I think it is because Jesus is on this mission of redemption, and the demons know it. They know what he's trying to do. They know that he is trying to redeem his people. This was prophesied about in the Old Testament. It was no secret, and the demons would have been well aware of what's happening. And and now here he is, the Son of God. He's become a human. And not only that, he's begun his ministry. He's begun preaching in synagogues. And the demon shows up. So what is he going to do? He said, i got to stop the plan of God. 
So here Jesus is. He's the Son of God, but he needs, he needs time to do his ministry. His ministry has just begun. Remember, this is Luke 4. It's at the very, very beginning. Jesus preached like one sermon in Nazareth. And here's his second one. And, and, and the demon, by trying to reveal Jesus as the Son of God, is trying to prevent Jesus from having the time to complete his ministry. Jesus himself says again and again, my time has not yet come. He says that throughout his ministry. My time has not yet come. And here's the demon saying, well, I, I know that, and I'm going to prevent you from, from completing your mission. The time of his crucifixion, the time of his resurrection, the plan set forth in eternity past has not yet come. And the demons want to stop that, this plan. So they try to reveal his identity too early, hoping that somehow they can prevent their ultimate destruction. We see this as their plan again and again and again. So the demon in the synagogue has two goals. Destroy the man he is possessed. If I'm going to be cast out, this guy's going down with me. And reveal Jesus to the crowds before he is ready. It's a clever plan. What happens? Jesus stops this plan, this demonic plan, with what? What did he stop it with? With his words. Jesus spoke, and the demon's plan was stopped. He says, be silent. The literal translation of that word is, be muzzled, like you put a muzzle on a dog. Be silent. And the demon is silent. He can't speak anymore. He says, come out of him. And, that, and, that, and that's the big moment. Come out of him. And the demon tries to destroy the man. He throws him down in their midst. But guess what? The demon comes out. And the man is unharmed. So friends, the word of God, the word of Jesus cannot be defeated. It cannot be prevented. It is always effective. Even the powers of demons cannot prevent the words of Jesus from acting with power and authority. Jesus' words are always, always powerful and effective. So here's the man Brand new, no longer demon-possessed. Jesus has cast him out with his words. And how do the crowds react? They ask a question. They say, what word is this? They're stunned. They were already stunned at the preaching. The preaching was something they had never heard about before. But here's a man that just spoke to a demon. No ritual, no magic. He just spoke, and the demon listened. They say, what word is this? This word has authority. This word has power. They've never seen anything like this before. When Jesus speaks, the demons listen. This word has the authority and power of God. And the crowds are starting to see that. It, they realize there's nothing, they, they've never seen anything like this before. Brothers and sisters, what about you? When you think about the words of Jesus... Are they powerful and effective in your own life? What sort of authority do the words of Jesus have in your life? When Jesus speaks, do you listen? The demons did. Do we? The Bible is clear. Jesus' words carry the authority of God himself. So obedience to Jesus is not optional. He is meant to have 
complete and total authority in our lives. It can be tempting as Christians, I can fall into this trap, it can be tempting as Christians to so concentrate on the forgiveness uh, that Jesus provides in his death that we miss the joy and privilege of following Jesus every day. That Jesus' commands are good for us. They they're, ought to be followed. They're gracious to us. But they ought to have authority in our lives. So ask yourselves, when I hear Jesus command something, do I weigh that and see if I'm going to do that today? Or do I hear that and think, that has authority on my life. That is the word of God. This is what Christians do. We hear what God says, and we obey. Specifically, as Christians, we hear what Jesus says as the Son of God, and we obey. What sort of authority does Jesus have in your life? Jesus said in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Keeping the word of Christ is a gracious invitation and a necessary invitation. It's gracious and necessary. It is gracious because the word of Jesus is powerful to heal us and make us new. And it's necessary because the word of Jesus carries the authority of God. We obey Jesus. It's a good thing for us, but it's also necessary for us to obey. So the crowds ask this question, what word is this? The answer, this is the authoritative word of God. When Jesus speaks, God is speaking. And it carries authority. It carries power. We follow Jesus' teachings because he is God himself. Second question that the crowds ask, who could defeat disease? Who could defeat disease? As this day in Capernaum progresses, Jesus leaves the synagogue. He's preached his sermon. It was interrupted so rudely by the demon, but then Jesus casts the demon out, and the man's okay. What does he do next? He goes to Simon's house. That's Simon Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. Peter, Peter, like the the apostle Peter. And Simon's mother-in-law is at his home, and she is sick with a high fever, which is a fancy way to phrase, she's sick with a really, really bad fever. She's very sick. It's very serious. In the ancient world, with its lack of modern medicine, there's no antibiotic for her to take. This is a serious disease. So imagine the scene. This is what we do when we're reading the Bible, right? We put ourselves there. Here's Jesus in Peter's house. Here's Peter's mother-in-law. Hot, feverish, miserable. Here's Peter's wife, stressed out about her mom. And here's Peter, anxious to care for his wife, anxious to care for his mother-in-law. And he looks at his new master with hope, who's just cast out someone with a demon. And he's thinking, could he do anything about this? People appeal to Jesus on the mother-in-law's behalf. He approaches her, he stands over her, And he rebukes the fever. Just like he rebuked the demon, he rebukes the fever. He tells the fever to leave her. And just like the demon left, the fever leaves as well. And then imagine imagine the joy, the relief of Peter, Peter's wife, Peter's mother-in-law. 
You can, you, can re, you can feel the gratitude pour out of the mother-in-law as she immediately gets up and begins to meet the needs of everyone there, of Jesus and his disciples, maybe making some tea and snacks. It's a very mother-in-law thing to do. She's trying to meet needs because she feels, she feels perfectly fine. It's not a slow recovery. It's an immediate recovery. The fever just leaves. and She's good. Word must have got out. Because the whole town seems to show up at Peter's house. In verse 40, it says, After sunset, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Notice here Jesus' slowness, his intentionality. Don't know how many people showed up, but it seems like a lot. Like the, the whole town, they all come with their sick. And he didn't heal everybody at once. Remember, Jesus' Jesus' words are powerful. He could have spoken, and it would be done. But this is what Jesus does. He goes one at a time, healing one person, and then another, and then another, and then another. We don't know how long it lasts. But he, he lays a personal touch on every one of them, and he heals them of their disease. This is personal, intentional, slow care and love from Jesus Christ. This is the sort of care and love that Jesus did not just display during his public ministry, but he he cares for us this way right now. Personal, caring. Have you experienced this healing touch of Jesus? This personal touch. Do you go to him when you, in your sin or in your suffering, in your anxiety? And you, you say, Jesus, I need to be healed. I need, would you help me repent of this sin? Would, would you help me with this, with this struggle, with this suffering? Would you heal me? Do you regularly go to Jesus for this care for you? And so Jesus casts out the diseases. He casts out the demons. Remember, we already talked about those demons at Peter's house. And you can sense the dumbfounded question of the crowds as Jesus goes one after one after one and heals disease after disease after disease. Nothing too serious for him. He heals them. What's the question? Who could do this? Who could do this? He didn't just cast out a demon. Maybe we've seen that before. But who could defeat disease after disease after disease? It's a good question for us. Who can defeat disease? You see, for humans, disease is the guarantee of death. The presence of disease in our world guarantees that we're going to die. It's just if we could imagine a world, kind of this utopia, where there's no war. Somehow we figured it out, and there's no war. I don't know what that would look like, but maybe there's no natural disasters. We've perfected climate change, and all of a sudden it's the perfect climate, and there's no natural disasters. It's a little bit more far-fetched, but imagine that. Maybe we defeat, defeat car accidents by creating these safer modes of transportation. So we're kind of sort of defeating different methods of death. 
disease would still be there. Disease would ultimately come for all of us. Disease is the guarantee of death in this fallen and broken world. Who can defeat disease? Modern medicine has improved. It's gotten better. It can, it can prevent disease. It can maybe postpone disease that ends up bringing death. But it, it cannot ultimately prevent it fully and finally. Eventually our bodies break down and we die. But here we see in the miraculous healings of Jesus, he did not give people pills. He did not do some surgeries. He laid his hand on them and they were healed. It was miraculous. It was beautiful. We see him systematically, one by one, throughout the night, defeat disease. And ultimately the disciples would be left with the question, could Jesus defeat disease itself and death itself and create eternal life? This would have been one of the main reasons why Jesus' death left them in such despair because the promise of eternal life would have seemed to be snuffed out with the death of Jesus. But we know that the Bible tells this rich story. Death and disease did not randomly enter the world. It didn't just always exist. No, we as humans die because of judgment for our sin. Romans 5.12 says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. See, death is not natural. It's not something that just exists in the world. It is a consequence of our sin against a holy God. We used to, in the Garden of Eden, there was no disease. There's no need for penicillin. But now there is, because disease is the guarantee of death. But on the cross, Jesus paid for all of our sin. The wrath of God turned away from sinners. And in the resurrection of Jesus, we see, now that our sin was paid for, what the miracles were, were merely hinting at, that death could finally be defeated. That we don't always have to live under the curse. That we can be free from death and have eternal life. So who could defeat disease? Who could defeat death? Only the Lamb of God who is slain for the sins of the world. Brothers and sisters, let these miracles that we read in our passage today, let them point your eyes back to the cross where your sin was paid for. And then let them point your eyes forward to the day where disease and death will be no more. Jesus is giving us a little foretaste of what it looks like to not have to deal with death anymore. This is what the miracles of Jesus are showing us. Last question asked by the crowds. Why won't he stay? Why won't he stay? In verse 42, we see that the Sabbath day in in Capernaum was over. So that, the, that, that was one day, the synagogue, the preaching, the demon, the disease, one day. It's over, and the next morning, Jesus wakes up, and, it, and Luke says he wants to go to a desolate place. He goes to this desolate place. Sometimes we like to say in the Starks household, I, he just needs some alone time right now. So he's, he's going to, he's been around people all day. Mark's version of this same story notes that Jesus went to pray. He needed to pray to his father after just a full day of ministry. But the crowds come back. 
They don't know, we don't know how long they left them alone. But they come back, and we don't know what they want. Maybe they have some additional needs, maybe some more sick people. Hey, Jesus, you miss these people. Maybe some people who have demons, you need to cast these guys out. And Jesus, who did all things well, would have been happy to meet that need. But the crowds want something else from him. That's not, that's not exactly what they want. They want to keep Jesus from leaving. That's what it says in the passage. They want to prevent Jesus from leaving Capernaum. They've had one day with Jesus, and they were like, that was great. What if you just lived here forever? You can almost hear them eagerly asking, Jesus, won't you stay with us? Now, the question for us, I think this is a hopeful question. Was this a good impulse from the townspeople? Was that a good question? Jesus, won't you stay with us? Probably two possibilities. One, they want to they know Jesus more. They want to love Jesus more. They want to learn from Jesus more. And they know, like, Jesus, just stay with us because we love you. That was beautiful. Or they could have wanted more from Jesus. And those, those miracles were wonderful. We want more of that. So they could have wanted more healing, more comfort, more ease. There's a big difference there, right? Do, do, they want, do they want Jesus to stay because they love him? Or do they want Jesus to stay because he can give them what they want? The answer to that question makes all the difference in the world. Luke doesn't tell us the answer. But I think Matthew does. I think there's a hint in, in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 11, Jesus is pronouncing judgment on a series of cities in Israel. And he talks about Capernaum. He talks about the town where these miracles were happening. Verse 23, he says this, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. You'll be brought down to death, not to heaven. For if the mighty works done in you, casting out demons, healing people of diseases, if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So the people of Capernaum had seen Jesus' mighty works, yet Jesus is pronouncing judgment on them. Why? It seems it's because they wanted the miracles, but they did not want Jesus. And I think that's a helpful warning for us today. It is possible to love what we can get from Jesus more than we actually love Jesus himself. That's what happened in in Capernaum. So how how do we know which one we want? Maybe ask yourself this question. You can think about it and pray about it this afternoon. Do I want to keep Jesus to myself or do I want to share him with others? If you were a townsperson in Capernaum, would you have said, Jesus, absolutely go to the other towns. They need you. Go. I understand. The people of Capernaum did not want Jesus to go because they saw him as the answer to all their problems. We can be comfortable for the rest of our life. We can be at ease for the rest of our life. We'll never have to be sick again. These demons, they'll be gone. I wonder what else he can do. 
they were not thinking about the other towns of Israel. And friends, what about, what about us? Brothers and sisters at Christ Fellowship, we, Lance talked about it, like, look around at the room. I have been at this church for a decade. I remember how hard it was in 2012, and there was like 60 of us. And we would have been singing, Lord, I need you, oh, I need you, and it would have been about this church. Here at Christ Fellowship, it can be easy to be comfortable now. I praise God for the growth he has brought to our church. But part of why we are replanting a church is not just because we need to open up some more seats in the sanctuary. Part of it is because it's a question. Do we want to keep Jesus to ourselves, all the blessings he's given our church? Or do we want to share it with others? I think this is the question that Jesus is asking us in this passage today. Do we want to keep Jesus to ourselves? Do we want to hoard Jesus? Or do we want to share him? This is part of why we're replanting a church. Now, why did Jesus say he had to go? Was it because there were more sick people for him to heal? Hey, what I did yesterday, I need to do everywhere. Were there more demons he had to exercise? He, he did some of that, of course. But that's not what he says. That's not the purpose he says that he was sent for. Jesus Christ was sent by the Father, he says this, to preach, not to heal, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus was eager to go to the other towns of of Judea, not simply to perform miracles, but to preach good news, to tell the world of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, what's that? We, We haven't seen that in Luke yet. What is the kingdom of God? It can be defined as God's redemptive rule over his people. The kingdom of God is God's redemptive rule over his people. It's less about a place like the United Kingdom. You can look it up on Google Maps. Yes, I'm in the kingdom of God. It's more about power. It's more about reign. It's where God's righteous, perfect, loving will is perfectly executed. So think about the Lord's Prayer. Think about the words of the Lord's Prayer. One of the most famous verses in the Bible. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does it say? Your kingdom come. Next phrase. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what the kingdom of God is. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's about the will of God being done perfectly in the lives of his people. And Jesus is saying, I need to go tell people about that. Even more than that, the kingdom of God is ultimately about a king. You can't have a kingdom without the king. So you don't know that about if you're in the kingdom of God from your location. The kingdom of God only exists where the hearts and knees of people bow to the king and submit to him. That's how you know if you're in the kingdom of God. If you bow your knee to the king. Ultimately, this is what Jesus has been trying to show us in this passage. When Jesus reveals his authority to us, he's revealing that he is the king of the kingdom of God. That he's the king. In our passage, Jesus is showing that he is ruling and reigning over demons. And he's ruling and reigning over disease. 
and ultimately that he will rule and reign over death. And then he says, I need to go and tell people the good news of the kingdom of God. He's going to say, the king has come. The king has come. So why can't Jesus stay with the people of Capernaum? It is because the king had a mission to seek and to save his people. He was bringing his rule and reign to the world. The people of Capernaum missed it. They just missed it completely. They wanted the blessings of the kingdom of God without knowing the king of the kingdom of God. Christ Fellowship, let's not miss it. Let's be all about the king. Let's be all about the king, King Jesus. Every preacher's nightmare. Last page gone. That's okay. One last question for you. We've had, what word is this? It's the authoritative word of God. Who can defeat disease? Only the Lamb of God who paid for our sins and then rose again. Why can't you stay? Because Jesus has come not to be hoarded by us, but he's come to be the king over the whole world. The last question is, are you submitting and loving the king of the kingdom of God? Do you know King Jesus? There's some of us here that probably don't. We don't know King Jesus. You're not in the kingdom of God if you've gone to church all your life. You're not in the kingdom of God if you prayed a prayer when you were young or if you were baptized. You're in the kingdom of God if you are actively submitting and loving King Jesus. Friends, this is, this is the whole reason why Jesus has come, to declare his rule and reign in this world. And remember, he calls it good news. He calls it good news. This is hard for us as Americans to understand. Sometimes we're so anti-authority, like I want to be free, that we forget that having a good king that is ruling and reigning over us is good for us. It is hard for me to choose what is better, to be forgiven by Jesus Christ who died for my sins, or that I have the blessing of getting to follow King Jesus. The good thing is that I don't have to choose. Only those who are forgiven by the king get to follow the king. It's a sign that you're in the kingdom of God that you want to follow King Jesus. It's good for you. He is a good and gracious and loving king. So ask yourself, ask yourself as you, as you go throughout this day, what is King Jesus calling me to do? Have I submitted myself to him? For some of you, it may just be, I've never really followed King Jesus. I've, kind of, I've never heard of this before, or I've heard of it all my life, and I've never submitted myself to him. I pray, pray that you would know and follow King Jesus. But for some of us, we, we have followed Jesus, but it can be so easy to become comfortable in the kingdom of God because it is so good. And, so, and he blesses us so wonderfully that we forget that Jesus is calling us to follow him. What is Jesus calling you to do? He is the king. 
He has complete and total authority over our lives. And the good news for you is that he's calling you to invite him, to follow him. He's issued the call. Will you answer it? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the reminder of your grace and glory seen in King Jesus. It can be so easy, Father. I see this in myself to focus on how you have forgiven us, that we forget about the the joy of following you daily. So, Father, I pray that as we think about the authority of Jesus displayed over demons, disease, death, Father, I pray he would have authority over us. This is the good news that Jesus preached to the whole world. I pray we would, you would soften our hearts. I pray that you would help us love Jesus and not resist his authority. That you help us realize that Jesus is good. And when he calls us to follow him, that's, a, that's good news for us. Help us lean into that with everything that we have. Help us not keep back some of us, like lean back from Jesus out of fear, but help us lean forward, following our King. Lord, help us. We, we need you. Oh, we need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.